Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. And we're talking about a really interesting and really timely book today. It's entitled Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. Uh, And the book gives kind of both a personal and a societal perspective on the silent epidemic of loneliness in America today. And it is written by Kristen Radke. Kristen, welcome. Thank you, Shannon. So you started this book in 2016, but uh, Mm -hmm. as you got closer to publication, it sure became more timely. So was it already in the process of getting published when the um, when the pandemic hit or was this just, you know, kind of like a a blind luck that you were writing on topic? Uh, I was late into edits. We were probably in the last round of edits when the pandemic hit. And um, I remember thinking as I was kind of going through that last round of edits, thinking it was really strange to be working on a book where like when I started the project, my, my whole argument for the book was like, loneliness is something that we don't talk about and, and here's why we should. And here's why that's really dangerous. And then during the pandemic, as you know, as you know, everyone who lived through it knows we started talking about loneliness a lot. Right. So it was really interesting to kind of be finishing it in this totally different cultural space than I was in when I started it our world is a completely different place. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering, how do you categorize this book? I know it's a graphic nonfiction book and, and I'm familiar with graphic novels, but graphic nonfiction is a new genre to me. Is it considered a comic book? Um, I think you can call it whatever you want. There mm-hmm. have been, you know, Art Spiegelman's Mouse came out in the 80s. You know, there have certainly been not graphic nonfiction books around even significantly before that time. Sure. I tend to think of things like like titles and stuff as just more as like marketing conventions for where you're going to put a book in a in a bookstore. And I, I don't think I think about it very much, but I'm, I'm happy for people to call it uh, whatever they like. Whatever they want. Sure. And I mean, it is interesting. Yeah. We're, obviously, we're on the radio, so so the listeners can't envision it right now. They can if they get the book. Um, but yeah. but there's there are a lot of a lot of drawings and, and pictures of articles. And there's one thing that you said in the book that absolutely made me stop and say, whoa. And it was loneliness is the gap between the relationships you have and the relationships mm-hmm. you want. And that really mm-hmm. just hits all aspects, whether you know, professional, social, familial, romantic, yeah. um, all of those relationships, if we're longing for them and we don't have them. Um, and you also said that the perception that a person is lonely is is everyone seems to be connected. And so when you're feeling lonely, you feel like you're outside mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. something looking in on something that everyone else is in on. So how did you mm-hmm. gain that perspective? Research. I mean, I, I started this project with a great deal of research. I, I read like any book I could find about loneliness. And then those books, you know, cited other books and led me to that reading. And right. it just gave me kind of a language to contextualize what, you know, I've been feeling for a lot of my life, which is loneliness. I think writers can be inherently lonely people, but I think people in general are a lot of people are inherently lonely people. But I think the important thing to, to like an important thing for me in the book was to define what loneliness meant, because I think we, we misunderstand loneliness a lot. Like we can think of, we often conflate things like solitude and loneliness, which are not the same thing. Or we think of loneliness as 
something is really lacking, like we think of it as a personal failing. Like I don't have enough friends. I don't have, I don't have a partner. I was never, you know, I don't have a good enough, a supportive enough family. Like we can, you can kind of make all these assumptions, but that, but that gap between the relationships you have and the relationships you want doesn't mean you don't have people who really love you in your life and who you really love. Like there are ways in which through failures in communication or, um, you know, a million different things, the, the relationships that we have in our lives can, can leave us still feeling unfulfilled. Absolutely. And, and you said something along those lines that we project loneliness on others when exactly. we are feeling loneliness. So we'll see someone yeah. who's alone who might not be lonely at all, uh, but we yeah. attribute loneliness to them. We also kind of, as a society, glorify the lone wolf. You went into that mm-hmm, topic mm-hmm. and talking about cowboys. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about how that impacts American loneliness. Yeah, so I think like rooted in America's sort of basic ideology, kind of like the foundation of America, America is this real sense of individualism. And that we can see that a lot in the trope of the cowboy, right? One of the most classic American stories is the story of the cowboy. And we see that cowboy trope kind of being iterated on again and again and again in books, movies, TV, you know, from from the from the first time we saw uh, someone on horseback to today you know it continues sure. it's a very common archetype and there's something like really alluring about that and really sexy about that but it's also um a really dangerous thing to sort of put isolation up on a pedestal in that way and and i think it's it's this idea of self-sufficiency of like being like um completely self-reliant which is a total myth like no one no one can do can succeed on their own period right. like that's just that's just a fact. And I think in the way that we speak about success in America, um, we forget that a lot. Most definitely. Well, and, and you also kind of talk about how we're trained and socialized in the middle of pop culture with laugh tracks on television yeah. shows. And uh, you talk about a study that people are more likely to laugh in a crowded theater than if they're watching uh-huh. a show on their own. Um, right. So there really is a societal a push on us to tell us what it is we should be thinking and feeling. I mean, I think what's interesting is to think about for me in this project was to think about how um, these things that we think of as not significant at all, like something like the laugh track, how it was actually rooted in this uh, desire to feel connected to something. Like we, I think a lot of times we think of the laugh track as like this kind of outdated, annoying, you know, kind of a nuisance of a thing, but it, you watching a television show with a laugh track creates the feeling that you're in a room with other people. And it's interesting to me that the rise of the laugh track emerged at the same time as a lot of people were moving to the suburbs. And there was Mm -hmm. a lot of um, people, a lot of, there was space around one another, I think for the first time for a lot of people. Sure. Um, So people were feeling they were geographically more isolated from each other. And that's when kind of this emergence arose. Um, and, and what I think is interesting about the laugh track in that regard, too, is is producers did think of it as, oh, people at home aren't going to understand what's supposed to be funny, like audiences aren't smart enough, which was completely untrue. But they're, they were, it was also kind of short-sighted of them because they didn't understand basic human biology, which is that um, we are much more likely biologically to laugh when we're around other people. It's, it's like built into who we are. 
Sure, sure. You talk about crowded cities and being on the subway mm-hmm. and how sometimes mm-hmm. having people around can seem like an inconvenience and it's annoying and it's exhausting, but then mm-hmm. somehow that feeling translates to longing because we're looking at worlds and lives that, yeah. I, like you say in the book, I, I I might never know or I might never live. Mm-hmm. And that was so mm-hmm. uh, that was so profound to me because. Mm. I, we don't know looking in, looking at someone that we're seeing on the street. We have no idea what what is going right. on in their life, what they're thinking, what their relationships are like. But we still seek to make those connections. And you, we, yeah. toward the end of the book, you talk about making those connections via the Internet that we have, you know, more recently the ability to make those connections, but that it doesn't really in the long run help. So tell me a little bit about your research with that. You know, I was, I grew up, um, I was born in the late 80s. So I, I had the internet in my life, you know, from sort of like adolescence on, but I wasn't like born with technology in the way that kids are today. And so for me, uh, technology, I think, and the internet in particular felt like a real escape for me at, at a certain point because it gave me freedom. The internet also in the, in the, late 90s, early 2000s felt a little bit more like private somehow than it does today. Like there weren't social networks, you know, like there are all of the, all of the biggest problems that we have on the internet really hadn't emerged yet. And so it was this space where I could kind of just go and like feel like myself and, you know, like talk to strangers. And, you know, there, of course, there are a million ways in which that can become problematic. But for me as a fifth or sixth or seventh grader, it was like, pretty transformative in my ability to kind of like craft my own identity, which is, I think, something a lot of kids struggle with, um, particularly like under the gaze of their parents. So I found it really transformative. I think the problem in the long run is um, we can't, we, the internet is not a a replacement for interpersonal communication and interpersonal contact. And so when we, when we view it as a substitute, I think it's where we get into trouble. But there are also, you know, there are real advantages to the internet in a way that, that we sometimes overlook. Like um, the internet gives a lot of, you know, people access to each other who wouldn't otherwise have access to each other. So that means it's a big deal for someone who maybe has mobility issues and can't get around outside the house. Yeah. It's, it's, it's both a a blessing and a curse and you describe it as a a, a constantly penetrating space. And so, yeah. um, like yeah. you said, the, you just, you describe a story of a, a woman whose husband died and, and mm-hmm. the, the comments on her post went from uh, condolences to judging to recrimination. And suddenly she was this um, yeah. villain by, by posting and talking about her husband. And so you say that kind of living alone does tend to cause people to be more aggressive people who are physically separated so tell me a little about that Mm -hmm. yeah so basically if we live in uh if we live in a prolonged state of loneliness we can enter this state that's called that scientists call hypervigilance and basically what happens is when we're alone for prolonged periods of time in the in human evolution uh our bodies evolved to feel in danger when we were alone because throughout most of history that was true if we were alone 
um, when we were like in our hunter gatherer days, we were much more likely to get attacked by predators or starve to death or get lost and die or, or freeze or something like that. Like a lot of really bad things could happen. So right. when we're, when we feel isolated, our bodies are kind of sending alarm bells through our bodies through stress hormones to tell us, hurry up, get back to one another, get back to another person because you'll be safer. So today that's really, really, really useful to, to, to make us safe if we're, you know, like running away from predators or something like that. But when we have those hormones build up for a long, prolonged periods of time, like in 2021 is a great example, 2020 or really any modern year, not even a pandemic year when we're spending immense amounts of time alone with really no um, reprieve from that when we're not able to connect with other people, that stress hormone is just building up and building up and building up to a point where we actually begin to see um, our brains and our bodies begin to experience um, social interaction as threatening. And that's what, when that's really the, the state that I, I think like if I want um, my biggest hope for how we learn and, and uh, understand loneliness is how do we prevent that, that, that point from happening because it's harder to break, to break down those barriers once we reach that point. Most definitely. And, and there was a, a fascinating study that you cite where MIT scientists actually found a cluster of brain cells that go mm-hmm. dormant during periods of aloneness. Uh, and yeah. then they go into overdrive when the subject, mm-hmm. I, I believe it was primates, or is, is reunited with others. Mm-hmm. And that was fascinating to me because uh, I think up until then, scientists had studied, you know, job, lifestyle, relationships, economic right. relationships. They had never been able to find some sort of common uh, common denominator, and and it turns out it's a cluster of brain cells. Yeah, totally. And I think that when you think of it like that, there also it takes the shame out of loneliness. I think when you think of it, it's like these are just biological functions that we're feeling, and we just need to learn how to how to manage them, and then take care of take care of our basic human needs in that way. Sure. And and you talk about something that I didn't even know existed called the cuddle industry. Um, and yeah. so there are people out there who pref- you pay them to come and cuddle with you. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that humans are longing for touch uh, so, so much that this is actually a thriving industry just shocked me. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me th- about how the lack of human touch affects us. Yeah, so this was actually one of the more surprising things to me in my research uh, that I, I didn't, I certainly didn't expect to uncover this. But scientists call our need for human touch skin hunger, which is a fabulous phrase to describe uh, the yeah. feeling of of kind of lacking interpersonal touch. And um, it's like there are all kinds of studies that show how basic platonic touch, like a hug from someone you love, floods you with endorphins and it helps you, like it it gives you better performance at your job throughout the day. Like it's better, it helps you fight off disease, like all of these things. So when we go into long phases without human touch, we're really lacking something that we need. And it's that same biological function of hurry up, get back to your tribe, you're in danger. It's that same sort of response. So when some there's just a, basically an industry that's cropped up uh, in response to to this problem because people are living alone more often you know they're um sure. putting off marriage and having children they're moving away from their families you know we're a lot more transient than we were 100 200 years ago so there are all these new problems that emerge with that 
Absolutely. And, and you said something that, that, that made me laugh, that anyone who is going to a prostitute to buy sex certainly knows how to achieve their own orgasm for free. And so <laughs> clearly they're looking for uh, something other than sex. They're looking for um, touch. And, Compa- and or you, companionship or, yeah, or to like see, be with another human being. Sure. And you talk about how people who even people who are married and live with their families and are happy um, are yeah. feeling loneliness. So tell yeah. me a little bit about how how that loneliness factors into American society. Well, I mean, I think sometimes we especially when 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 someone joins a family, when they couple up they're when they have children, there's a tendency sometimes to isolate as a unit. Like it's very, you know, we're all tired, we're all overworked. So it's a lot, you know, relationships, friendships take work. They take maintenance in the same way that a romantic relationship does. And I think it's easy to forget that. So those relationships can fall away when we're focused on a, on a family unit. And that, that family can be really sustaining, but it doesn't mean that all of your needs are met. You know, it doesn't mean that you can talk to your partner about everything you can talk to your friends about. It doesn't mean that your children are giving you the intellectual stimulation that you can get from like going out to dinner with a group of old friends. So, you know, there are all of these, we need a lot of different kinds of relationships. And I think it's easy for us to forget that. And we pray, we, as we get busier, we spend, we prioritize those relationships less often. So those, those relationships really begin to fall away. And that's dangerous because we get something different from each one of those relationships. So you can have a wonderful family life and still feel alone or still feel lonely sometimes because those relationships aren't giving you all of this, all of the sort of intellectual, emotional, and social stimulation that you need. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense because one, one person can't, can't be everything to everybody. Exactly. Um, exactly. And- yeah, yeah, we do. We have we have all sorts of different and every person has different needs and they come from a different mm-hmm, background. Mm-hmm. You know, their their yeah. needs are dependent upon what they know and what they feel like they're lacking. Uh there and there's yeah. there's something you talked about how, you know, we have an epidemic of loneliness right mm-hmm. now in America, but you say mm-hmm. we've kind of always been lonely. That that right now it's being talked about, but that this loneliness has has always been there. Yeah, we have always, I mean, I think loneliness is, uh, like I said, it's a biological function. So it's always been something that we we have felt, but mm-hmm. it is definitely increasing. My, I think the, the, the benefit of, of this moment that we're in is that we're paying attention to it now. And the only way we can solve a problem is by looking at it and by investigating it and trying to understand it. So I think that's, that's a really hopeful moment. But loneliness is definitely... Um, a problem that's that's growing and expanding as people, you know, are more likely to live alone, are are less likely to get married, are more likely to move away from their families, and are working longer and longer and longer hours. Sure, and yeah, it's it's inherent to the human condition, but modern society yeah. can absolutely contribute to it. And you really, yeah. in this book, examine just so many reasons why. And you you end it I mean, on a hopeful note. So I mean, clearly there are connections that can be made and and futures mm-hmm. to be had. So what is your what is your overall outlook looking forward on the state of loneliness in America? I mean, I. I, I guess trepidatiously hopeful. Like I think we have learned. My hope is that we'll ha- we have learned a lot, particularly from the pandemic. You know, the way that mutual aid groups formed, and the ways that we maybe related to our neighbors in a way that we didn't before, and we checked in on each other even when we were across the country in a way that was probably less a part of our daily routine. 
I think the real question now is, can we maintain that and can we sustain that when the emergency has passed? Because we should be doing those things all the time um, anyway, like in, in ordinary times. Community engagement is one of the most important things that we can do as individuals and as a collective society. And so um, it's really, really important that we reinforce those bonds. Well said, well said. Um, so you are participating in the Miami Book Fair, which is how I met you. So, yeah. um, so tell me about the Miami Book Fair. Are you speaking there? Um, I am speaking there. And Miami Book Fair on Sunday the 21st, I have a panel with the writer Catherine Raven, and we will be having a conversation um, at noon. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And if if you want to find that, you can go to MiamiBookFairOnline.com or the Miami Book Fair social media. Well, Kristen Radke, the book is Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Shannon. And for the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.